Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Art. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the Architecture Program Curator here at the RA. This is the third and last event of the future, Lost Future Future Fund series. This is a series of events that we've organized accompanying an exhibition that is now at the architecture space. The exhibition is Future Found, uh, the real and imagined cities case of post-war Britain. And I encourage all of you who have not seen it yet to go there to the main building to, to visit it. This series and the exhibition, it was inspired by the book uh, Lost Future, The Disappearing Architecture of Pogwar Britain, uh, which was published uh, by the RA and uh, written by Owen Hopkins, who was the previous architecture curator. Let me introduce to our chair tonight, Professor Adrian Forti is a emeritus professor of the history of architecture at the Barlet School of Architecture at the UCL. And his many books include uh, Concrete and Culture, A Material History, Words and Building, A Vocabulary of Modern Architecture and Object of Design. Also between 2010 and 2013, Adrian was president of the European Architectural History Network. Please give a warm welcome to our chair, Adrian Forti. Thank you, Gonzalo, and uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, well, we're here to talk about the future this evening, and we're going to consider whether architecture should think about the future, how architecture should think about the future, and more specifically, in thinking about the future, should architecture reflect back on the post-war period, the 1960s, the 1970s, which was itself a highly future-orientated period in architecture. So that retrospective reflection on whether we've got anything to learn from the post-war period will be one of the main themes of the conversation this evening. We have three speakers this evening. Douglas Murphy, uh, who is an architect, a journalist, he is the author of this book, Last Futures, which is a particularly thoughtful, reflective take on that post-war period which was so invested in the future. That reflection is something that he's going to pick up on uh, again this evening. Our second speaker is Peter Barber, who is an architect, uh, principal of Peter Barber Architects, uh, his work uh, stands out for its inventiveness uh, in the design of mass housing, and he is the architect of the award-winning, prize-winning Donnybrook Quarter in Hackney. And our third speaker will be Farshid Musavi, who is an architect, principal of Farshid Musavi Architecture. Uh, she was formerly one of the principles of Foreign Office Architects, who uh, some 15 years ago completed uh, that uh, uh, sort of table-turning, ground-changing building, Usaka Terminal Building, which uh, merged architecture and landscape in a particularly uh, surprising and original way. Uh, Farshid Musavi Architects Architecture is one of the most creative design-led practices in the UK. Um, Farshid teaches at Harvard, and she is a Royal Academician. 
So let us start with Douglas Murphy, who's going to speak first off. Douglas. I thought to get this started, I would set the scene a little bit for the themes that are, are, are coming up, which are ones that are familiar to me from uh, the book that I wrote that was published last year, Last Futures, which looked at future-oriented uh, architectural culture of the 1960s and 70s. But to look at today, it's worth considering the main global concerns that we have at this point, one of which might be seen as, uh, or you might, you might say, is, is, is economic and political in nature. Specifically, let's just, let's just call it uh, the, the, sort of the inequality problem. Very recently, I learned of a, um, there's a, there's a new book um, by a chap called uh, Walter Scheider, um, which is called The Great Leveller, which argues that um, the only times that humanity has ever uh, become a more equal, uh, or human society has ever become more equal, is due to cataclysmic war, cataclysmic disease, cataclysmic natural disaster, or cataclysmic transformative revolution. Uh, this would obviously seem to tie into arguments such as uh, Thomas Piketty's that uh, the natural form of capitalism is to um, increase inequality. And the general feeling seems to be, in, in, in many ways, um, that, that, that things are, 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 to a certain extent, pulling apart at the seams. Um, you see uh, things like the election of Donald Trump in the US, uh, the Brexit vote in the UK, the rise of um, long-term, also-ran far-right types like um, Marine Le Pen. Uh, and, and all this kind of thing seems to suggest a certain... Um, post-2008 uh, freeing of the, the edges of, of the world order, uh, which, you, you know, you cannot help but notice. And one, of the, one of the other main things at the moment that people are concerned about, shall we say, um, is the question of automation and the question of technology. Uh, there, is, there seems to be a growing acceptance of the fact that um, a great deal of human labor is about to become redundant or is in the process of becoming redundant, um, where perhaps in the past when waves of automation happened, people were able to move into different new industrial sectors. This doesn't seem to be something that's happening again now. So there seems to be with the rise of, the, of, 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 of digital tech, the prospect of vast swathes of, of the human workforce becoming completely uh, superfluous, um, with only an extremely small group of people uh, benefiting from this, which obviously feeds into the inequality question. And then, of course, the third one is the, uh, the third concern is um, ecological, um, where we have this strange situation where it seems pretty much everyone knows what's happening, but the inertia of how things are run seems to um, mean that nothing is, nothing is, or nothing adequate is being done. And you know where we face, where we can sit and, and 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 discuss things like the the release of methane from the permafrost and things like that. That would you know people say in very level-headed terms would mean the end of all human civilization and most of the life on Earth at all. And, you know, we, we hear about this and, and, and have to somehow fit it into the way we look at the world. So 
with if if these are let's just say that these are the these are the kind of three major crises that appear to be affecting the world or the human world at the moment. Um, one of the things that really uh, got me started on the book that um, that I wrote uh, is is the fact that a lot of these questions were being asked in very similar ways, eerily similar ways, around 50 years ago. Um, and if we accept that one of the, perhaps, the, I mean, the funny thing is that the major crisis or the major fear that is always discussed at that, in, say, the 60s or 70s is the, is the nuclear fear, which, of course, we act as though it's gone away when it clearly, it clearly hasn't. But, you know, mutually assured destruction was... Um, was uh, on a lot of people's minds back then. But the late 60s and into the 70s was also the period where ecology first starts being a, a major um, world concern. Uh, although the, the actual details are, are, are quite different at that point. For example, um, people are less comfortable now speaking about population control than they were at that point. Uh, one of the major um, best sort of non-fiction bestsellers in the early 70s was um, Paul and Anne Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, which expected Armageddon any time by the end of the 70s uh, due to, you know, Malthusian over, overpopulation. Then there was uh, the crisis of pollution, which at that time wasn't necessarily linked to the greenhouse effect, but was definitely linked to the sort of contamination of the, of the, of the world. Uh, and you had things like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which was such a, a galvan had such a galvanising effect on the green movement. Uh, and then other, the other concern was resource depletion and the, the, the ability to maintain industrial capacity. And then you had things like uh, limits to growth by the Club of Rome, which um, clearly, uh, or which hit, when you look look at its diagrams, um, predicted. Uh, global collapse to onset around ooh, about 2020, uh, and then you, show, you see the graphs that you actually map industrial industrial capitalism onto it since 1970, and everything's everything maps quite beautifully, which is quite sort of neat. Um, and then the other th the other thing that, that that's in, that's being discussed a lot at that point is is technological change, and this is when the electronics revolution first starts to kick in. Uh, there's a lot of talk around then about uh, issues of, say, cybernetics and so on, the introduction of um, digital computation into the workplace, and the rapid social change that results from it. But so 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 these questions were were on 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 people's lips to a, to, to a very large extent. Um, 50 years ago. But back then, one of the big differences you see when you compare uh, people's writings on it and, and, and uh, the, the, the general mass media discussions as well as more academic writing is that the, there's a, one of the big differences between then and now is that the, there was a general acceptance that social, or sorry, there was a general acceptance that life was changing as well as the world around um, human culture. So back then, everyone uh, there was a, a, a consensus that the world is, is 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 changing rapidly, and the way we interact with each other is going to change extremely rapidly, uh, as well. Whereas now we're more used to a kind of uh, post 1970s, uh, there is no alternative kind of world where every technology changes extremely rapidly. The um, uh, the natural world is in is in seemingly terminal decline, and yet. Uh, 
the organisation of, 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 of human life politically cannot possibly change. Uh, the, you, you, you probably, it's quite a familiar phrase, is the, is the saying by um, uh, is, uh, Jameson's quote about it's easier to imagine the end, of, the end of the world and the end of capitalism. Now, the other thing that was of, that I think is very interesting about that period is that architecture uh, plays a, or played a much larger role in the public consciousness of, of, of the rapidly changing world at that point. Uh, for, and, and it was seen, uh, space was seen to be a huge part of how life would change. So, on the one hand, there was the, the kind of mass housing drive. Now, of course, in recent years, there's been a mass housing, uh, there's been a huge change in the housing situation in China. But in the, in the post-World War II period, there had never been a building program across the world in the, in the advanced economies, in the third world, in, uh, in the Soviet Union and so on. There has never been before or, 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 or since such a mass building program as there was at that period. It was also a period where rad, um, brand new materials were coming into use, things like plastics and so on, which really um, inspired and um, suggested huge new change. Uh, new technologies uh, were coming, were, were being developed or were being perfected. This was the era when uh, air conditioning became ubiquitous, and this led people to imagine completely new ways of inhabiting space, whether that be in um, vast interiors that, 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 that people would roam around nomadically in or, or, or what have you. And there was a, there was a, a lot of thought and... Um, imagination went into thinking about new forms of space, uh, whether that be transit, things like the, the, the airport and so on were very inspiring, the, the, the rise of mass transit in that, in, uh, or mass international transit in that way, but also the development of the modern office block, um, spaces that were flexible, indeterminate, that could be changed. There were, there were ideas about how people might, might live in this kind of future world. Um, Ideas of capsules, the space race, the idea of, of, of spending time under the sea or spending it in space was deeply influential at this point and, and, and led on to, to, to ideas of you know, vast enclosures like the famous bubbles that covered all of Manhattan and things like that. Um, and everyone, and, and what's really striking to me is that uh, in, in, in researching and writing this book was just how inevitable people thought this was. Because nowadays, in the kind of internet culture uh, world, we see images of some of these proposals from that period, and we say, and they look fantastic, and they look strange, and they look almost alien to us. When in fact, when you look at them being presented at the time, a lot of them are people just expecting, just extrapolating what they'd experienced in the, in the 10 years previous to the next 10, 15, 20 years. It, it was a period of such change, and they expected this amount of change in the future, which didn't happen. And so we're now in this kind of world where the technology is still advancing, the ecology is still declining, and or the, 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 the natural world is still declining and so on, but we seem completely um, unable to imagine any kind of change in the way we um, live in space together that would um, 
be appropriate to this kind of change. And that's what's really strange for me about looking at these, um, looking at the more uh, radical fringes of architecture at that period, in that period, and what's really important for how we think about what might be what might be the spaces that, that, that humans inhabit for the next off into the off into the future, basically. So thank you. Peter. Right, okay. Well, okay, so um, I thought I'd begin with a quote, um, and it takes us a bit further back than the 50s and 60s, and it's a quote I find really inspiring because we, um, we, we so often sort of accept the status quo, don't we? We so often think that there's nothing we can really do, and I think that is not a sense that people always had, and, and it's definitely not the sense that one gets from this quote by Lewis Mumford from the, the, the opening chapter of The Culture of Cities from 1938, and in a way he sets the scene for perhaps what happened post-war for the extraordinary process that Doug's just been describing, the, the, you know, the, the quite unique uh, in its scale uh, social housing programme that emerged in the aftermath of the Second World War when this country was broke. This country has never been rich, this city has never been rich, this city is one of the richest cities the world has ever seen, and you have to walk across people lying in doorways to get out of the tube station and coming down Piccadilly, it's a disgrace. Um, so Mumford was conceiving of something outside of the situation which existed in 1938, not just in terms of the design of cities, not just in terms of architecture, <laughs> but in terms of a, kind of a new kind of economy, a new kind of way of thinking about uh, how we organise ourselves as a society. He says this, Instead of clinging to, to the funeral towers of, of metropolitan finance, ours to march out to newly ploughed fields, to create fresh patterns of political action, to alter for human purpose the perverse mechanisms of our economic regime, to conceive and to germinate fresh forms of human culture. We must affect a cult of life, life in action as the farmer and mechanic know it, life in expression as the artist knows it, life as the lover feels it and the parent practices it. Life as it is known to men of good will who meditate in the cloister, experiment in the laboratory, or plan intelligently in the factory. And I think that's an amazing quote in the context of uh, our, uh, the, the sort of chaos which is, which is uh, reigning at the moment in, in politics, in, in which uh, our, 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 our welfare state is being dismantled in, in all sorts of areas. Uh, most particularly uh, for me in the area which is, which is of great interest to me in, in housing. Uh, the acceptance of the sort of commodification of housing, uh, the marketplace being, uh, you know, the movement of money being the, the best way to think about how we organise resources. And it's the fault of successive governments, Labour and Tory, uh, they've had plenty of opportunities to sort it out and they haven't. This disastrous uh, act has been passed and uh, we are reaping the rewards now. Compare Mumford's words to those of David Cameron. Post-war estates across Britain are ripe for redevelopment. We will sweep away the planning blockages and take away steps to reduce political and reputational risk for projects, key decision makers and investors. I believe that together we can tear down anything in our way. And this is what we get, you know, um, as I say, the sort of commodified, uh, um, uh, you know, um, sort of ubiquitous 
middle rise, antisocial um, kind of urbanism, which is going up in Vauxhall and Nine Elms down the city road across to Old Street and uh, uh, all across London. Uh, empty, uh, empty apartments, unaffordable apartments, but it doesn't have to be like that. And you know, this is, this is just down the road here. These are a series of pictures taken by homeless people of their own, own, own environment down in Kingston. This is somebody's living room, you could say, somebody else's living room, some poor soul's bedroom. And this is the reality, this is the context. So I think this is the time for a utopian way of thinking about cities and architecture and more, more generally about society. This is a project that we did for the contested Mount Pleasant site. Uh, same number of units as, as, as produced in the HMM master plan, but a much more um, a kind of sociable environment of, of little streets and alleyways crisscrossing the site. And, you know, in the spirit, the heroic spirit of, of, of Camden's great architects, Neve Brown and others, in the post-war period, here we have Alexandra Road. You know, some, in some ways, a kind of a vision of, of some kind of paradise, of some kind of utopia. Earlier ones, you know, model housing down in South London and arms houses. So a benign, benevolent state, or in this case, church, I guess, um, producing architecture which doesn't rely on the, on, which isn't reliant on the market and doesn't have as its main um, a, a driver the market. And so that sort of mindset, the, the Mumford, Mumford mindset, has inspired a couple of projects. I'm going to show two unbuilt projects and one which is just in, uh, being completed for Camden Council at the moment. Uh, and, and this is a little village that I designed. So I, as well as being a sort of practitioner, I spend a lot of time trying to think outside, take, remove myself from the situation which exists and think, you know, what if? And this is a, a cooperative farming village based in the Wiltshire countryside. Uh, it's made out of mud, a material which is free. It costs nothing. Um, uh, and, and the people who... I'll, I'll read you what I wrote about it. Village, the village is a farming cooperative village located in the Wiltshire countryside. It measures about 70 metres by 70 metres, and it sits at the centre of 100 acres of farmland. The front doors of 50 or so little, uh, little mud houses open onto six cosy alleyways, uh, which converge at a tiny square where there is a meeting house. The village is built of earth dug from the ground on which it stands, and together the community works in, on the land to grow the food which sustains it. The project is conceived around people's relationships with each other and the landscape that they inhabit. It is designed in the spirit of early modern ideal settlements, Owen's New Harmony, Howard's Garden City, Corb's Radiant City. So there you have it, and we made a plaster model of it, the little alleyways crisscrossing it. You can see the, the imprint of the little houses and how it sort of sits embedded in its landscape. So there's sort of ecological themes here, but there are themes about a, a different kind of, of a relationship between people and the landscape. And one of the little houses. So this brings me to the next unbuilt project, a sort of theoretical project, and this is called 100 Mile City. And it's an idea about how can we uh, create, if we accept, and I'm not sure that we necessarily need to, but if we do accept that we need a couple of million homes over the next few years, uh, how can we do that without demolishing... Uh, housing estates, how can we do that without demolishing entire blocks in Soho? Uh, and, and in my view, the answer to the uh, housing crisis in terms of where do we put new homes is, is in suburbia. And this is an idea about saying, what if we build a city, rather than in the Green Belt, which is another silly idea, isn't it? Uh, we build it in the last 200 metres of suburbia. The circumference of London is about 100 miles. So I wrote this about it. So this is London, and that's, this is this linear city that wraps itself around, around London. You know, shades of, of Will Allsop in, in, in Yorkshire, wherever it was. And, and uh, you know, the other people have had this idea, but nevertheless. 
Build a street-based linear city 100 miles long, 200 metres wide and four storeys high. Wrap it round London. Give it little factories, schools, houses and shops laid out in terraces along intimately scaled streets and around squares. Make it a dense, intense edge to London, a confident, purposeful boundary fronting a revitalised, productive countryside. 100-mile city is a linear Barcelonetta, a circular Rome, a stretched Porto, suburbia reprogrammed, hybridised, compressed, catalytic urbanism on fleek. Ride the 100-mile high-speed orbital monorail, souped-up Skyfly Circle Line, the loose ends and frayed edges of London's transport system, its isolated city edge train and bus termini instantly, meaningfully, usefully connected with circus ride technology, Bexley to Brentford in 40 minutes, super functional, super fast and super fun. And in time, watch our city grow inwards, because it would start from there and it grow inwards as London wanted to grow. Watch it grow inwards, spreading like a wildfire through the wasteful, antisocial, car-choked suburbia, eastwards from Richmond, west across the Newham Marshes, up from Eltham, across the hills of Greenwich and the empty green swords and, green and golf courses of Enfield. Metroland consolidated, backfilled, integrated and urbanised. London for 40 million people, a kind of inside-out plan voisin, Ville Radier's blighty style. And so there it is, you've got the countryside on the outside, you've got suburbia within, kind of wrapping in and out just inside the green belt and these little four-storey high Houses with streets running through, businesses, schools, little ladder of streets. And we made this model, 100-mile city model, cast in plaster. The countryside here really hard-edged the city, and the countryside turned back into productive countryside. And the idea of this monorail, which was spinning right around London, connecting the frayed, frayed ends, edge, ends of the transport system. Very easy to get in and out of London, much more, easy, much more difficult to get around in suburbia itself, and that's what this would do. And there's a little moment from it. In preparing this talk, I suddenly realised there's a connection between this project, which is a homeless project in Holmes Road in Kentish Town, for Camden Council, bless them, still the vestiges of kind of welfare state idealism in parts of Camden Town, Camden Council. And, you know, we found a client here who was prepared to do this. It's a homeless project, the main hostel's there, and this is a garden for therapeutic horticulture for the guys from the hostel to work in. And these are tiny cottages which go around this garden. It's a long, deep backland site. And when, I, when we drew this, we, they said in the office, well, Camden are never going to go. They wanted a hostel. They're never going to go for this. And, but, but we went along, and, and I'll read you what I said to them. Holmes Road Studios... Oh, no, here we go. We imagine a group of residents working with a gardener to create and maintain an intensely planted and beautiful garden. There'd be an apple tree or two, Potatoes, green veg, soft fruit, herbs, a greenhouse, a potting shed and a sunny spot to sit and rest. We think there ought to be a little room or shed in the garden for private chats one-to-one -one and counselling. The garden creates a homely domestic atmosphere in the hostel. It'll give participating residents an interest and an outlet for their energy. It'll help to foster a sense of belonging, self-worth and empowerment amongst residents. It'll provide people with an opportunity to develop gardening skills and encourage them to think about nutrition. So it's a sort of collective uh, housing scheme with kind of people offering support to each other, but also therapies in the forms of in the form of, of, of gardening, as I said. Um, but other things, there'll be a, um, a medical facility in there and, uh, and training, sort of life skills training. And uh, this sort of thing, all too rare. And, and you know, this is the sort of environment those poor guys out there should be in. Uh, at least in transition to getting, uh, getting their own homes. 
Um, so the main hostel at the front, quite a nice Edwardian building, um, and, these, and these little, you know, they're a bit like almshouses, um, around the sort of collected, collective and protected environments of this, of this central courtyard. There's more conventional hostel accommodation within the main building, but each one of those is a little house, which is like that. So a double height space at the front with a kitchenette and a table, a shower room underneath and a bedroom up on top. And these are, these are very, very small, but they kind of work. And not quite there yet, um, but, uh, you know, use your imagination a bit, maybe. And, 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 you know, Camden, a fantastic, or the people we're dealing with there, a fantastic visionary client, you know, who, who um, have at heart the, the interest of the most vulnerable people in their, in their borough. Um, and, um, you know, all credit to them for that, because without a client like this, who is, to, who is prepared to ring fence and remove the marketplace from the equation, this sort of project uh, remains you know, in a sketchbook and remains a kind of utopian or at least idealistic uh, vision. But um, you know, thanks to them, it's actually happening. Thank you. Um, I guess it's a good, um, good transition, actually. Um, so I begin by a question, social innovation or idealism. Uh, when asking for social innovation through architecture, we must remember that the architects don't ultimately decide where, how much, and for whom buildings, such as houses, offices, or schools are built. So social innovation by, architect by, by architecture is about architecture not being a matter of form alone, but rather a matter of what the form enables a novel form function or typological solution to a social problem. When looking at 21st, uh, 20th century buildings, <coughs> which uh, we've been asked to reflect on as opposed to contemporary architecture, um, here uh, are, uh, is a group of buildings for residing, um, all 20th, 20th century buildings, uh, a group of buildings for working, uh, these for shopping, these for reading, uh, and these for watching sports, we see a lot of formal similarity. We might therefore wonder whether idealism as well as social innovation underpin on the, on the 20th century architecture, which we don't see when, look, when we look at recent uh, buildings from the 1990s to the present. We might then be inclined to say that architecture today has lost its social or practi practical ambitions and that it is just a product of the market or eclecticism. Well, I think this is absolutely not true. Great architecture has always participated in social innovation even before modernism. So it's, it's um, misleading to, to discuss social innovation starting from modernism. Uh, and this vision of architecture has manifested itself at different scales and forms in response to the needs at the time and the means available. To make this uh, tangible, let's look at social innovation through the lens of the history of architecture for the learning environment. At each moment of each architecture has provided students with experiences that are immediately valuable and which better enable them to contribute to the society eventually. For example, in ancient China, courtyard houses enabled learning to take place through privacy and intimacy. In ancient Greece, gymnasiums, another kind of building, which were large structures with diverse spaces for exercise, competition, to take place in the nude, promoted a more democratic form of uh, learning by larger numbers 
uh, of students through uh, camaraderie, fitness, and body aesthetics. In the Middle Ages, self-contained monasteries, another kind of building, formed a highly introverted system of learning promoting religiosity and asceticism. In the 17th and 18th century, university buildings with diverse spaces dedicated to different subjects promoted specialization of knowledge. In the 19th century, when education became available to the masses, the single schoolroom became an architectural solution to educating many learners by a single teacher and promoting a didactic hierarchical system. And in the 20th century, the open-air school promoted healthiness and extroversion, which the single schoolroom lacked, as well as the open-plan classroom, which promoted learning through collaboration. But the open plan was introverted and proved to be distracting, and its uniformity did not suit everyone. Moreover, both the open air um, and the open plan uh, models uh, for, for learning uh, spaces uh, of the 20th century were ultimately based on a reception uh, of standard knowledge type of education by teachers to students to gain job-specific skills, which in today's world quickly change and become redundant. So today, learning environments need to embrace a learner-centered paradigm in which learning is a process involving students, their peers, faculty, ready-made access to the world via the internet. And learning cannot be confined to the classroom or the indoors. So let's look at shifts or innovations uh, between some 20th century um, and 21st century schools that correspond to this new paradigm. Here is a 20th century open plan school with a column-free universal space and perimeter glazing that is masked to transmit openness, introversion, and flexibility, but it transmitted uniformity and, and distraction too. This 21st century school overcomes distraction and introversion as its structure provides a sense of zones to the open plan and its perimeter glazing enables panoramic views of the exterior. It transmits therefore not only openness, which is, which is, um, which is uh, desirable in the 21st century learning, but zoning and transmits uh, transparency as well. And this 21st century school uh, is another open plan which overcomes uniformity of the earlier schools by undulating the learning spaces and introducing courtyards, therefore transmitting differentiation uh, in addition to the openness. This is another 20th century school with a structural perimeter wall pierced evenly with narrow windows to insulate the learning spaces visually and acoustically. Therefore, it transmitted homogeneity and introversion. To overcome introversion and homogeneity, this 21st century school pierces its perimeter structural wall unevenly with varying size windows leading to differentiation of the learning environment and porosity in the learning spaces. Here is another 20th century school which owing to its enclosed classrooms being disconnected from the central atrium transmits interaction in the atrium but cellularity and separation too. This recent school spiral in atrium which is seamless with the learning spaces exchanges cellularity and separation for openness and fluidity. And this recent school, which we designed as FOA, eliminates cellularity and separation with its split levels and interconnected atria to enable communication and socialization, which again are desirable today. This open air school that I mentioned earlier is another 20th century model that provided a terrace on every level to, to transmit openness and outdoor learning, but they were secluded to each level. 
This recent school's external public ramp connects all of its levels to each other and to its roof and allows learning to spill outdoors and all the students and public to interact, thus transmitting urbanity and indoor-outdoor learning, which we can do today given our digital tools. In the Bauhaus, which we all know is an exemplary 20th century school again, its three functionally specific parts were connected by stairs, with no provision for communal space, except these corridors, as you see here. So it, it transmitted zoning and segregation between learners, which this school, which we designed again at, F at FOA, subverts with its opener ramps and transmits continuity between learning spaces and the side landscape and enables interaction along their length as well as the rooftop, which is designed as a communal space. As Venturi, Scott Brown, and Eisenhower, Eisenhower said, once said, learning from the existing landscape is a way of being re revolutionary for an architect. Not the obvious way, which is to turn down Paris and begin again, but another, this, that is to question how we look at things. I have researched this in my, in my uh, last book, The Function of Style, where 20th century and 21st century buildings are drawn in grayscale. Superficial differences such as colors and textures are suppressed in order for organizational shifts to be highlighted. For example, the residential building to the left shifts buildings' experience of entering apartments from enclosure and interiority experience in the 20th century residential building to the left to exposure and exteriority. Such shifts exist between all exemplary 20th century and 21st century architectural projects examined in, in, in the book, which we cannot go further to, in tonight, but I think these comparative images show that by choosing to change conventions set by earlier buildings, architects today engage social innovation or the micropolitics of everyday life with the understanding that the inherent power of architecture is not at the scale of grand manifestos, but at the scale of the everyday. Ideas about buildings as we know them today don't have to be discarded or designed from scratch. In the same way that innovation of cars or aircraft today do not involve a total redesign. But strategic changes in the way buildings are designed can be made, which have a profound consequence in how people come to use them. So just to finish, this is a diagram from the style book showing that the sharing of ideas that have occurred consciously or unconsciously between architects since the 1990s, um, it shows that um, what has been built before can be used as a domain of freedom that is internal to the discipline, regardless of what the market does, regardless of what the budget is, regardless of where you're going to build. Architecture has its own power. Um, this is an open source that architects can share, not to copy each other, but to turn disciplinary knowledge or architectural history into an active dynamism that is able to create diverse responses rather than ideal solutions to social problems. Going back to my opening question, social innovation or idealism. Early 20th century projects, despite claims of innovation through ideal forms following their function, did become obsolete over time. We are tearing them down all the time because they are no longer useful to us. Um, so the open platform approach of contemporary architecture to innovation, is that more ultimately able to engage with the ideas of change or uh, the more idealism of modernism. That's what I would like to leave you with. As an initial response to what we just heard, I think what 
struck me very much is that we see in the um, projects that Farshid was talking about, which are schools, educational buildings, offices, shops, an extraordinary willingness to change things and to find you know, alternative solutions. And the odd one out, it seems to me, is housing. That housing is something that has remained remarkably static, I would say, over time. That our models of what we expect from housing have somehow not shifted at all. Um, that we're concerned about its provision as a social good, a necessity, if you like, but there's, there isn't this kind of, uh, oh, we can make the world a better place through you know, somehow refining or readjusting the form of, of, of the dwelling. Sure. I, uh, do, what, do you want to respond well, to I mean, this? Well, I mean, you d'habitation, you know, <coughs> that, that was pretty radical, wasn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, who, 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 who's that, you know... The, Corbusier used the most, most heroic language to, to talk about kind of housing and, and machine for living and, and things like that. So um, I sort of take your point that um, it's an area where, the, um, where sort of conservatism is at play because um, it, it's so close to people's kind of everyday life. But I think, um, you know, there have been lots of fascinating, you know, Alexandra Road I showed as an example. And, I, uh, you know, the debate that was going on in the immediate aftermath of this the war about you know high-rise housing against kind of more you know Camden architects attempts to do kind of more street-based housing. And the other thing about housing is so closely connected with um, forms of, uh, of urbanism. So when we do housing, we're really creating if it's urban housing, we're creating cities. So 70% of all the buildings in London are, are housing. And so I think if we're talking about the form of cities and types of cities which we want to have, you know, and how they reflect a kind of social uh, structure, mm. then I think it does get quite uh, um. Could I respond to that? Yes. I think this is a this is a this is not this cannot be generalized um, uh, between all kind of countries. Uh, there has been a lot of innovative housing uh, in Spain. Uh, there has been in the 90s. There has been a lot of innovative housing in in um, in Holland. Um, um, I mean, obviously, with with a different kind of uh, let's say with the with the economy changing um, uh, and hitting these different countries at different times, they have their, you know, they have their moments of strength. Uh, I think that here in the recent years, we haven't seen a lot of innovative housing. Uh, and, but uh, I think France has been very busy building uh, housing. Uh, we are just now finishing uh, you know, a quite a large block which that is not dissimilar in scale to the Unité. Uh, and I think it has th those kinds of ambitions. And the ambitions didn't start from us. They started from uh, a communist mayor who decided to have in the same building students' housing, social housing, um, affordable housing, and a little bit more expensive housing. So it's a kind of a Haussmannian uh, building mm -hmm. with a kind of the social structure of the city mm -hmm. inside. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to be innovative with that uh, and, and extend that ambition through the way we design this. Uh, I think that these things do exist. Unfortunately, yes, in the UK, um, and, and probably because because uh, you know public funding is not uh, uh, you know building those housing, and 
the private sector uh, tends to become quite complacent, uh, you know, with innovation until something hits them. And, and the good thing is that right now it's hitting them. I mean, pr hopefully from now on, everyone, we, including ourselves, we all have to work harder because... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, but it, it's, it's good. I think it's good. I, I think that... You know, moments of crisis have always been, have led to innovation. And uh, recently we had, uh, you know, I think the building industry had become um, very formulaic. And it was hard uh, for those practices that were interested to question things to actually find the opportunities because they felt like troublemakers. You know, if you ask too many questions, you're a troublemaker. So I, I think... I, I think that uh, now, I think it's just, I think, needs are uh, changing. And I think everybody else, including those who deliver projects uh, and eventually architects, have to, have to rethink things. Yeah. Do you want to come in, Douglas? Um, maybe. Um, I think maybe two, there's probably two very simple things. One, one is that, um, one is that, uh, yeah, I suppose after the, the, after the war there was a, a, a remarkable change in uh, forms of dwelling space if, on very simple levels like living up high and things like that. Well, maybe not after the war, but 20th century, let's say. Um, and there hasn't really been uh, a great deal of change since then. And to the extent that one thing that myself and quite a lot of people note is that lots of uh, change has happened in cities, but the dwelling seems to have remained very... Um, similar, uh, the, the, for example, Patrick Keeler's argument about about the the dilapidated housing stock in the twenty in a kind of twenty first century economy, and then the other thing is that is that what's really accelerated, and let's just take the British context, but um, you know after the war, government. The government, both left and right, tried very hard to solve a housing crisis, whereas for the last thirty odd years, the basic. <laughs> political stance has been to uh, prolong and exacerbate a housing crisis uh, because of you know the various foibles of who votes for who and so on and that I mean I mean that's got nothing to do with architects really but that's really it has a huge effect on what our cities are like and not a particularly positive one okay. well I mean, what do you think I mean what with I think perhaps Doug was saying and I agree, agree is the sort of the, it's the market that creates that sort of conservatism to a significant extent, where 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 the, where the, where, the, where one steps outside of that system, and you showed a picture of Narconfin, you know, um, all sorts of other things become possible. But you know, sorry, you mentioned that. You know, the, the Russian constructivists are have given have been given, um, in a way, too much credit for social innovation. If you really look uh, closely, uh, they were very prescriptive of how people should live, like the, you know. The, you would look at these housing buildings and, they, you know, you had to live, uh, you had to, for example, have a communal kitchen. That doesn't suit everyone. Or you, you, there would be a building where every part was where a separate function and you would have to eat here, uh, have shower here, do whatever here. And, uh, you know, they were very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. They were formally very exciting. But they were actually really prescriptive. And I'm not really sure whether we want to visit those prescriptions again. Okay. Can I perhaps go back to the kind of general theme of the evening, which is, you know, faced with um, circumstances that we have now that we've never seen before. You know, we're in a situation in which um, the 
disparity between rich and poor is continuously increasing, you know, whereas in the post-war period it was converging. There was a consensus towards diminishing the um, disparities between rich and poor. That has changed under the neoliberal economy. Um, and that, as you <coughs> said, Douglas, that we live in a world where there is a kind of fatalism about the future, that there is a kind of live for today, to hell with tomorrow kind of, of view. And, you know, to, yet to be an architect, you do have to think about the future. You cannot but do it. That is what architecture does. It has to conceive, you know, something that does a world that doesn't yet exist. You have to think about what might be. So where do, where do you get your, your material from to find a future world when we've never had anything like this before? That's, that, to me, is the great, you know, mystery that um, faces architects. And I'm really interested to hear what you each have to say about that. Uh, uh, well, for me, I'm very grateful for the time I have teaching. And I think academia is where um, ideas like this are able to flourish and emerge, where, where, where people can be removed to an extent from the situation. Um, and uh, we run a unit at Westminster in which people are encouraged to think um, idealistically uh, about the situation which ex exists at the moment. And we're running a project at the moment where they're, they're all designing islands, strangely, for, you know, in the context of a discussion about utopia, um, thinking about sort of places which would be productive, but also where people could live. And um, I, I just find those sorts of conversation sort of really fascinating, and it's very, very useful to be able to sort of remove oneself from the office situation. But I think a lot of these sorts of ideas come from a kind of having a, having a, taking a moral and political position about what, you know, we live in a democracy. And so the situation we're in at the moment is not inevitable. It's, a, it's, it's a possible for everybody in this room to, to do something about it. And I think it, things will change. And, uh, you know, if we were able to build 14 million, uh, housing for 14 million people, you know, in the aftermath of Second World War, 150,000 units a year were built, social housing, we could do that again. It's what needs to happen. One of the three things that needs to happen: we need to have um, rent controls, we need to end right to buy, and we need to have a massive social housing program. And problem solved. It's not difficult. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> Farshid, you got any um, clues I, I, as to how yeah, to? No, no. I mean, I think that uh, we've we've um, we've experienced um, uh, different scales of change. Uh, in, in not, um, uh, you know, in, in just the last 10, 10 15 years. Um, uh, I, I think there, it is true that sometimes, and probably we are, one, we are, we are experiencing one of those where changes uh, uh, become of a certain scale and magnitude where actually you have the opportunity to think bigger, uh, to see larger potential for change. But I'm personally very interested in how architects can be uh, creative and build a future through the everyday, through everyday practice. I don't want to think that my everyday practice is a job that I go to and I just kind of churn buildings around and I have to go and teach excuse me, sorry to say that because I do teach too, to be visionary. I, 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 I do think it's possible to be future orientated through your everyday practice. You know, when I design housing, I think about how I can uh, design the structure of the housing so that 
it frees the interior of, of apartments of load-bearing elements, so in the future, people can reconfigure their apartments. And when I am building a museum, uh, I, I think about the fact that, well, museums are uh, increasingly having to subsidize themselves, and so there is a reality that they have to rent parts of their space as well as curate exhibitions uh, uh, you know, uh, as part of their kind of artistic program. And, and so how do you really design this building where the two co co could cohabit constantly this building without the two becoming combined, which actually affects, affects I think, the core uh, function of a museum. I think every single kind of building you look at, uh, you know, you can be future-orientated and make insightful strategic decisions that allow for other futures to exist without having to wait for every 10 or 15 years for a grand change. Douglas, you got any? Yeah, and, and, and perhaps it can reflect on, 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 on something Farshid was saying earlier on, but um, the, something I noticed, or, or something I think is very uh, funny, is that if you, let's just take for a second the idea of the, the big tech companies being the kind of visionaries in today's world. Let's just, uh, you know, you could dispute that, but let's say that they are the kind of future-oriented, uh, uh, those who have a, those who have something to look forward to from capitalism at the moment, you know. And they've started building their headquarters and things like that in a way that they weren't doing before. They were basically just taking over uh, older forms of, of of commercial space before, and they've all raided. They've all been raiding the, the 60s and for their ideas of what they want their um, big headquarters to look at. The one, the one that I wrote about most was, was the Googleplex, which was a big, which I don't know if they're still going ahead with it, but at the time, a few years ago, they were looking at doing a gigantic tent with movable structures underneath it, which is just straight out of the Bucky Fuller kind of world. Um, and that struck me as really fascinating, that, that, that in order to view, in order to grab their idea of the future, they had to go back to their own past and the kind of countercultural uh, origin of, of, of Silicon Valley and so on. But I, I thought one thing that strikes me is, as, as really fascinating about, about the kind of formal yeah. and, and the idea that, well, forms do things, you know, they have functional uh, implications. And you, you talk a lot about the connectivity of these spaces <coughs> as a kind of future oriented and a, and a kind of. And one thing that it often happens, but it often seems to happen with headquarters and signature buildings in these cases. And the majority of, say, let's look at commercial space, the majority of commercial space remains a kind of box with a central core with as many chairs as you can fit in it. And then, and so the question I have about, about the future-oriented architecture of, say, uh, the Rolex Center or, 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 or what have you, is about perhaps its metaphoric content in terms of, like, questions of communication and, and connectivity and so on. And I wonder how much they actually exist in these buildings and how much this is about the rhetoric of, of these kinds of companies and what they, what they want to achieve and what they, their view of what the future is, which is this kind of flowing uh, information world where you can be anywhere and work on anything, you know? And I don't know if you have a position on that, but it strikes me as really vital to what, what is actually going on with these kind of, um, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I think that the, the we are, in a way, victim of our own desires also. Um, you know, speculative buildings, um, because, uh, as opposed to what you call signature, owner-occupied buildings. An owner-occupied building, you can design it and you can 
try to understand how the organization works and try to build in uh, other futures into it because you're working for a kind of an end client that you know. Um, when you're dealing with speculative buildings, you don't really know who the user is. And you know, we are working now on a speculative office building and it's hard to really engage the interior because actually what people want is to come and do whatever they want on every floor. So there is this thing that you want to speculate as an architect how people should work in the future. But on the other hand, what people really want in a speculative office building is to have the ultimate freedom to do whatever they want over time, which in a way uh, takes the architecture back, right? So I think that's, that's a reality of life. You know, the, there are different kinds of buildings, and I think the power of what architecture can actually set in stone for future and how much it has to get set, sit back and let the future dictate, in a way, what will happen, uh, you know, is, is part of the is part of is part of uh, life, and I think it's not that architects are not thoughtful or that the the person building it doesn't want to be thoughtful, but actually it's the nature of that kind of building, mm. unfortunately or maybe fortunately, depending on whether you're a tenant or or the architect. Mm. I would say I would say that the more let's just say the more vulgar uh, contemporary visions of the architecture of the future naming no names, let's say, but uh, I think that they fall flat on that question very much, so um, certain, mm. certain German friend we all, we all know in the London scene. <laughs> no, but look, I mean, there are good and bad uh, buildings and good and bad um, architects, so good and bad writers and good and bad, you know, I, I think that uh, it's w when we talk about you know, all the great things of modernism, we are actually talking about the good things. If you see what modernism did, when modernism made cities, we now look at them and they are quite horrific. There are cities, you know, so there is a difference between exemplary modernism, modernist buildings versus what modernism did to cities at large. The really best cities are the ones that are not just built from scratch during modernism. Why? Because modernism, when it repeated itself, it became really uniform, monotonous, you know, homogeneous, not great places to be. So I, I think that we should always be also self-critical. We made, you know, we or our ancestors made modernism. We need to be constantly critical, take the great things they did and leave the, the bad things behind. And I think that will be the same case with the, with, with the period we've just left. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. I'd like at this point to open to questions from the floor. So if uh, there's anyone who'd like to ask a question. I'm an artist and I'm currently based in London, but before this I lived in Birmingham and a lot of um, other artists there were doing work about John Maiden's Central Library and the legacy of modernism then. And I think one of the reasons, kind of reflecting on it, because I'm very inspired by architecture in my own work, is a lot to do with the idealism. Um, because, I mean, apart from the aesthetics of it, um, because encountering architecture now, you're saying like architecture has power. A lot of the architecture I encounter now as an artist, particularly in London, it's power that's kind of enacting against me. So, like, I saw a development going up down the road from my studio, it's called The Gallery, and I thought, <laughs> shit, like, I'm going to be out soon. Sure enough, <laughs> so they could raise the rent, um, business rates, so I'm out some further out. Um, and I think, like, it's all very well saying, like, you know, being thoughtful about everyday spaces, like, it's fine, um, but I don't think it's that useful. 
Um, like even going out to say Stafford, which is where I studied um, and did my foundation like 2008, um, we got a great new building, um, which we'd been out of the city previously. They moved us into the centre of town, designed something like the Bauhaus, different coloured floors, you know, different... It's a great design. I went back this year, it's a centre for business and commerce. Like, my experience of architecture now is like, it's powerful in a bad way. And I kind of want to know what your response to that is and how it can be kind of worked into the framework that you get creative ideas rather than just creative enterprises, which seems to be what being put in the place of actual creative. Would you like to start on that, Douglas? And then maybe... I have, a very, I have a very short answer to that. And I think that that's, at the end of the day, a, a political uh, change, uh, effectively. We get the... We get the buildings that the people who have the power to build want yeah, at the end of the day, and how much say we have, we as the ordinary people, let's say, is variable. Well, I think we have to think politically, and um, you've raised an issue which is about uh, the system that we're in, and um, that, uh, to me, is intimately connected with um, design and with architecture. And I don't, I don't buy the, the cool house position that, you know, we just have to accept the situation that exists and we can tweak, you know, the cladding and a uh, great architect, obviously brilliant uh, with space and everything else like that. But I find that attitude so sort of um, defeatist. And um, I think until we deal with the commodification of, of our cities and of um, prop the property economy, um, that situation will persist. So we have to do something about it. And we can. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as a citizen, um, you know, I, I've been on the recent marches, uh, and I will participate in uh, a demanding change uh, in, in the political system. I will do that. But when it comes to me uh, and, and, and the, the skill that I've developed as an architect, I think that the tools that I have to instigate change are at the scale of the everyday. And I think they're very powerful. I think when I am sitting in my office making decisions about how people live and how people work, how people go and view art, and how people go and learn uh, you know, various things in, a, in, a, in an academic institution, that's a lot of responsibility given to me. And I want to be accountable for them and actually make decisions in a way that improves life. And I think architects, good architects, do that. I'm sorry that you have had this kind of bad architecture near you, and I think there is a lot of it. But I'm optimistic that, you know, <laughs> that there are also a lot of good architects. Okay. Well, I, mean, I agree with, the, I agree with the, 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 the small things, the practical things. And, you know, Michel de Certeau, you have to love him, you know. But I also think that, you know, I, so I admire Michel de Certeau, but I also admire Karl Marx and, um, and, and Walter Benjamin. And, uh, and I think, um, you, know, it, you, know, uh, you know, you're absolutely right to be fascinated by how people behave in space and how people walk up steps and things like that. And, 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 but um, it's up to us whether we have a city of gated uh, private uh, housing projects or a city of street-based housing, you know, and we as architects can influence that and uh, discourage clients from, from um, destroying the city by, by building gated compounds. And so, you know, we can influence these bigger things, the structure of the city. I really believe that. I'm curious to know because um, on the one hand there's this idea of um, commodification, but then there's also this current trend of, say, DIY movement or 
this democratization of production in some sense, um, shifting from consumption to production so that, for example, we have WikiHouse, um, you know, or there's like a shifting change in the way the spaces are used, for example, Airbnb. So I'm curious to know if you see future of architecture as being decentralized, um, because I feel like the system has always remained more or less the same. How do you want to respond to that uh, fracturing of the market for buildings? Um, uh, it's really interesting. I read somewhere, and I have no idea whether it's true, but I really like the idea, is that in, I think it's Uruguay or somewhere, 60% of all the social housing is done by small cooperatives. And so you could have a massive uh, you know, housing programme funded by direct taxation, which is quite devolved in the way that it's produced and uh, so you know maybe there's some kind of hybrid it's interesting i think it's happening at, uh, i think there are these uh say let's say diversification in 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 um in procurement but also in in, in ways things are made but there's also there are tendencies of centralization at work as as well uh and 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 especially in in the kind of say let's say the new the new media economies and so on these are there are um, enclosure is happening at the same time and one of the things that always seems to fall flat in terms of say these kind of co-housing or uh, other kinds of alternative routes to um, production are, are often just numerical are often just like oh it's and, and you see all this kind of uh, people getting huge amounts of praise for delivering eight flats or something somewhere and, and that's and that's wonderful and sometimes this is these are really great but at the same time the numbers of uh, the, the numbers that are, say, required when people estimate what is required to fix crises are things that the only institution we have that is remotely capable of doing that is the state, right? But then who likes that these days, you know? So um, it's, a, it's a tricky... <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't see those fixing the problem anytime soon, but perhaps, you never know. Things are all up in the air right now anyway, so... But there's hybrids, aren't there? Like, sorry, sorry Elemental, you know, a planned city which has scope for people to to, to, to customise and, and where, where the buildings are flexible enough to allow people to customise. Mm. Oh, yeah. Let's take another question. There's a few over there. Let's go over there. Um, this might be one for Peter, based on your designs, but I'm just really interested to see to know what you think about kind of new town developments such as Poundbury outside Dorchester and 40% is supposedly going to be social housing, but do you think this is just kind of an idealised concept that isn't going to pull off or do you think it does actually have some sort of... Going to work? I, I'm, I'm for, um, I'm for, for uh, uh, housing projects which are connected with existing, existing infrastructure. So to that one extent, one could support a, a Poundbury-type urban extension yes. or, or densification of suburbia. Um, I don't know that Poundbury is like that. I thought it was pretty much of a, a monoculture of, of kind of owner-occupiers, but I may be wrong about that. I like the fact that it's kind of street-based. <laughs> um, I, I but, I, but, I, but I think the, the principal issue, and what, what, what lies at the heart of all these discussions, whether it's Poundbury or Google's headquarters, is a political discussion. What's going on behind the architecture? Because the real issue with Google is they don't pay any tax. And probably the real issue with Poundbury is that it's, it's owner-occupation. Brother, if you want to add anything coming on that? I, th I think Poundbury is a really extreme case in terms of what it means. Uh, it's, 
I mean, the last few days in the UK seem to be wrenching us right back to this kind of uh, 80s uh, imperial nostalgia, uh, giving the Spanish what for uh, kind of stuff. And Poundbury, I'm, I mean, nothing against the people who live there or whatever. I mean, they probably all vote Tory, but um, like, n n nothing against them as human beings. But it's symbolic in the UK uh, in the history of the UK. It's symbolic because it's a rejection of the city, it's a rejection of uh, anything uh, remotely like an egalitarian culture and, and, and so on. It's, it's, it's highly symbolic. And this is one of the things that happens in, in, in the background of, of, of say, say the, the work you do at really analysing deeply what it is that architecture does. But then always what ends up happening is all these kind of symbols get attached to it, which is not necessarily architectural per se, but it ends up happening. So the tower block comes to represent, you know, various kind of ideas of, of urban failure and blah, 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 despite the fact people can live very happily in them, you know. And, and, and so likewise, Poundbury represents a certain thing in the UK culture, you know. That's a question at the end. Uh, another question for Peter, actually. The, can I go back to the, the scheme you showed in Camden, mm. um, which, which looked really, really very interesting. Can you say what are the characteristics in Camden that make that possible, as opposed to why, if you went to another local authority, it would be impossible? Yeah. There's two things. One is that Camden actually do spend money on, on looking after homeless people, where other boroughs don't. They ship them out. There's a big difference there. And then it's down to, in that particular project, a person who, who was the effective client who is idealistic. <laughs> and, and who, you know, was prepared to take risks and put their job on the line, wasn't just worried about their pension at the end of it all, was, was wanting to, he felt a sense of responsibility, despite the fact he's part of a huge organisation personally felt a sense of responsibility and, and, and actually was able to think logically about what was being proposed and the possible beneficial consequences of, ha of having this garden and social space. Yeah, well, I feel we'll be quite lucky. We've got some good clients. And I think sometimes you can encourage people to think about things in a way they hadn't thought of. And that's one of the real, actually, joys of being an architecture, developing that sort of connection with the clients and taking them on a, some what-ifs, you know. What about we think about it? like that, you know, and uh, that's what happened there. Um, just to say, I've also worked with Camden and I've found them to be very innovative in other areas as well. I think, I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something different to other clients. Um, I just had a question, really, I think we're saying about a lot of these issues being political, but I wonder how much of them are really financial, because I feel like a lot of our political decisions are being made because there's an assumption around growth and that there has to be a return on investment around developments and actually that's what's causing a lot of the developments to go through as they are. Um, and also what we can do about that, which I think is the more <laughs> difficult question. What about we say we're not having any more private developers? <laughs> They're making a mess of it. They're building houses that people can't afford to live in. They're building houses that, that are making the city a worse place. I'm not saying, we, but I mean, we could think about things in that way if we wanted to. Well, I mean, I think that um, there is something probably um, an in-between measure, which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, is a little bit less idealistic. Um, 
which I, I mean, I think the UK's, um, you know, um, policy where buildings beyond a certain scale must provide uh, social housing is something that not all other countries have. In fact, they don't. It's very smart. It's a very smart way of delivering social benefits through private uh, 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 initiatives, through initiatives that are ultimately private. And I think these are the ways in which we can actually change the system. We can, yes, all go and live in some kind of utopia, but then there will be others left who will suffer. Okay? And I think that somehow, rather than you know, thinking radically only, we can perhaps think in other ways. I, I think that that is a really great policy, which we have here and other places don't. They either build social housing or they build private. And I think there is a lot of actually great um, um, you know, social integration that comes out of that kind of building, where you have you know, uh, two kinds of uh, affordability living in the same place. It means not having people, rich people living in the center and less rich people living um, you know, much further away. And I think these are the ways in which I think our governments and uh, ourselves can also think about. But only the integrated together. And so often the, the low cost is sent out of town. We, we know yeah, yeah. when the developers it is insistent that the reality is yeah. something is something different. If we can mix up apartments so you have a, a, a democratic democratic forty percent living in the same mm. block, then that will change the city. But as yeah. long as the developer has the power to outsource the uh, the social engagement to somewhere else, it, it continues as as we do. Yeah. It's changed. I mean, I agree with you, but but, but they've they've watered it down. You know, 15 mm, yeah. years ago, you had to produce. You know, there was none of this viability yeah, nonsense. Have, you, you have, have to, to do, do it, it on site, and you have to do it on mm. site. And mm. um, you know, but these are the ways in which we citizens, when you see a planning application for something that is going up and there is not, you know, in a certain size and it doesn't have enough uh, social housing <laughs> on site in it, that's when you can rebel. Yeah, well, Matt, you know. I would I would say that there's 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 two things that come from that. The first thing is that uh, the fact that this happens and shows that the the the, the hammering that local government has taken for the last forty odd years uh, means that they're completely unable to compete with the lawyers that the developers have and so on. So it's a completely uneven thing, which is why the the, the rules are never followed. But the, the the second thing, which is a response to the question, is that if if Brexit goes the way it's going at the moment. Or gets much worse than there's a then you might find that in a few years London might not be quite such a profitable place to be building housing anymore. You know, uh, we could be in a completely different situation, uh, and people will be going, "Oh, if only there were developers still here building." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one it's one way things could be going. I think probably the last question. Yeah, mine too maybe shift the conversation away from housing for, for a moment and um, talk about the fact that uh, in the 20th century, modernism addressed the industrial city um, as its, let's say, maybe starting point. And housing, obviously, was a big part of that. Um, but a lot of it was built around industrial production, and there was a space for that that was physical. Um, and that generated, for instance, a lot of the development in the uh, north of the country, which you see is suffering now from a post-industrial uh, not just depopulation, but also loss of industry, loss of industrial industry. Um, so just thinking about the future uh, and this, the, the fact that there's no, there's far less physical space, physical vision of space for the post-industrial 
industry. How, how do you see towns that have been hollowed out in, um, in the North and in parts of the United States that are clearly forces behind Brexit and Trump um, in, in terms of the, the, the political process, how do you see a uh, vision for those cities going forward? In, 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 in terms of how, do our, how, how should architects um, respond to that? Is there anything architecture can do in response to the um, dispossession of, of the economic base of cities? Well, I think it's linked with the sort of uh, uh, the politics again. You know, for instance, I mean, if you go over to Hackney, right, which 20 years ago was dead on its knees, there's, there's tons of young people setting up small businesses and little productive businesses, and so there is something going on. There is something there. And um, so I, I'm optimistic. I think if the conditions were set up right for, that, that people could, could um, make stuff, then that's what would happen. Um, and, and, you know, agriculture is a wonderful example of, of, you know, vast areas of this country, amazingly productive countryside, just left fallow because it's not, because the economics aren't right. Um, so lots of people could be working in, in agriculture. And, I, and I'm sure the same is, is the same of, of industry. If the kind of conditions were, were right, then, then people would be productive. Not quite as simple as that, but, you know. Because the other thing that's happening is that, is, as I said earlier on, is, is labour like, of, of almost any kind is, is, it looks like it might be on the way out, uh, or at least. So the problem of, say, the North in the US and the North in the UK and so on is only going to get worse in terms of people excluded from taking part in production, let's say. Or what, what you would absolutely need is some kind of force uh, that would be able to um, go against market tendencies and redistribute things both economically and spatially what that force is well it used to be it used to be the state what what it might be in future who knows what it might be it might be the weather let's see um but uh, that, that's the kind of thing that you would need you would need a force that could could move away from say the centralization that is just sucking the uk towards london which has left us in this place that we're in now, you know, and, and similar forces apply there. And it's just, it's just about who, who can move against, against the five-year return, you know. I think we should relocate the capital every 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it. <laughs> and then we'll solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good <laughs> okay. Mine isn't really a question. I was just thinking uh, quite a dystopian view about social housing becoming a bit like Box Park in Shoreditch. <laughs> just going to be able to afford just a, such a small, minute space. I was just wondering what your comment, uh, if you had any comments on just if we run out of space and the paradox between uh, the amount of money people have and, and the space for architects and actually moving it away from architects and becoming more DIY. We don't lack space, it's just not distributed very well, you know? Uh, I mean, just the other day there were, what, 16 metres squared flats uh, being put into an old uh, council block in Barnet, I think, due to permitted development. So basically a lack of a force to stop them doing it, so they're doing it, you know? Uh, and, yeah, it's that. On the other hand, our kind of ex-Mayor Johnson put in space standards, you know, uh, which is a remarkably non uh, free market Tory thing to do, but so I mean, but I guess I guess these are the tools. But 
I think your point about would it be possible for people to have more control over their environments, I think space standards come about in order to protect people from, um, from developers, really. But if, 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 if I decided I wanted to live in a 16-square-metre apartment but be really central, then, and that was my decision, then that would be probably be... So, I mean, I think it's a confusing area, really. But maybe, what, but maybe once again, the issue is the kind of means of production make, uh, are the reason why we're all, as architects, can't do what we want to do because we're not trusted because we're working developers and developers aren't to be trusted. Okay. <laughs> On that, uh, it's the only pessimistic thing you've said all evening. <laughs> I'd like to draw the evening to a close. I'd like to thank our three speakers, Douglas, Peter, Franchi for your contributions and a great discussion this evening. Thank you to the audience. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.